Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to part two of the interview that Catherine did with Dawn from Scottish Murders podcast. Go and check out part one if you haven't already. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy having another week of a delicious Scottish accent in your ears. So following the Dunblane shooting, there was a campaign that eventually led to the ban of handgun ownership. Um, you know, it's set in you know, specific circumstances and if there's lots of criteria now. So mm-hmm. given the shooting crisis in America, why, why could something similar not work there? Well, actually, that's part of the subject of my second book, because it's really more complicated. It's so much more complicated than that. First of all, we're a lot bigger. And we have a lot more people. We have about 320 million people in the country, but we have about 420 million guns in the country. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, and those are estimates. <laughs> yeah. So those are estimates and they're estimates because we have no licensing and tracking system nationally for weapons, which is probably unlike almost every other country that has weapons and any significant numbers. And it's just gone past the point now where that's going to work, really, isn't it? How on earth would you? That's right. And, and so I think that that's why I'm saying it's so complicated. Because if you have that many weapons and there's no tracking of them, what that also means is that in many other countries, you get a license, most other countries, you get a license to be able to take a gun, or purchase a gun, and then, then you can go out and purchase it. There are no universal rules in the United States that require a license for a gun. And in many states, when you turn 18, you're able to legally buy a gun. So our rules are just the exact opposite. We're not only on the opposite side of the world of New Zealand and some of those other countries, we're the opposite of, right? When you can buy a gun legally in the United States, unless you can't in many places, 
right? So unless there's a rule prohibiting it because you're convicted of a felony, because you've been convicted of domestic violence under certain circumstances, um, because of you've been adjudicated uh, and held in a mental health facility against your will, you've been adjudicated to have particular types of mental issues, and that is documented in law enforcement records. So what happens is if you want to buy a gun, you can go buy one when you're 18 or when you're 15, you can let your mom and dad talk your mom and dad into it. You can go buy a gun at 18 or two or three. Some states have no limits on how many you buy. And all they do is run a background. I'm not saying all they do like that's, that's good that they do that, but they run a background check that really has only been in place in the United States for a few decades where you have to get this background check done in certain states, but not all, right? In certain ways, but not all. So there's no absolute rule. And the background checks are run through um, uh, through the FBI, through our NICS check system, uh, National Instant, as you can imagine, instant uh, criminal check system. So you get, there's a quick check to see, do you have these criteria that make it impossible for you to get a gun? And if you don't, then you can purchase a gun. And if your state allows you to purchase three guns or a gun every day, every time you just come in, they run a background check and then you walk away with your gun. And that happens all over. That's why most of the guns, many of the guns that are used in Canada and Mexico come from the United States. We are one of the major manufacturers of weapons, firearms, and the people who manufacture firearms in the United States want to make the money manufacturing firearms in the United States. And they aggressively, aggressively advocate for a lack of any regulation of guns. And they have since the 1970s in an incredibly aggressive way by putting money into politicians' hands for their reelection campaigns and literally grading them. You have a grade A from the National Firearms Association. You have a grade B. So although the majority of gun owners are responsible gun owners, uh, meaning that they keep their firearms locked up, uh, they don't have any trouble with the law, they don't have any trouble shooting places, there are a growing number of especially handguns that are just out there. Out there and, you know, if you have a handgun in your house and you're not using it, take it to the police and turn it in. You know, because otherwise somebody's just going to steal it from your house and they're going to use it in a murder. And I have been at people's doors before saying, hi, where's the last time you saw your gun? Because your handgun was used in a murder last night in Chicago. No way. So who wants to have that on their shoulders, right? But we don't have, so in other countries where there have been these, uh, you know, you you saw it, you saw it after Dunblane. You saw it, uh, we saw it in Australia. We saw it in Canada after some shootings where federal legislators said, the head of the federal agency said, uh, the country said, this is enough. We're going to pass this law. We're going to do this. And we're going to take guns back. And people are going to voluntarily give guns back. Thousands of guns, uh, which occurred recently in another country where there was a shooting. I think 6,000 guns were collected. People said, we don't want these around. The attitude in the United States is exactly the opposite of that. And in part, it's because we have generations of people who have been raised on cops and robber shows, westerns, you know, good guy versus bad guy, RoboCops and uh, Clint Eastwood. Uh, the, so the entertainment industry, there was a time period when the, in the United States, you know, 
like 75% or 80% of the movies made in Hollywood were Westerns. They involve people carrying guns who we glorified. So we've created a very much a culture of good guys with a gun out there shooting, even though good guys with a gun do not solve these shootings, which is terrible and sad that people believe that. So now we have worse, we have more people buying guns thinking they need it for safety when they don't even know how to use a gun. They don't know how to carry it. They don't know how to keep it safely. And now we have more people killed in the United States. I was just rolling some numbers. I'm going off. Sorry, I'm going off off far afield. But, um, (laughs) um, you know, you're asking why didn't they? So I'm going to tell you about some numbers and kids. But why, you know, why don't we confiscate guns? Because first of all, we have too many. There's no legal mechanism to confiscate it. And there is zero desire, zero desire at the federal level to pass a law to confiscate guns. There's absolutely, uh, there are some people who believe we should have no guns here. There's very few of any people who believe that we should pass a law and demand and take everybody's guns back. Besides the fact that who is going to take back 400 million guns? Who's going to give them just compensation for them? Who's going to collect them? You know, the army, it can't do that. You know, our military is separate from law enforcement and the military cannot act. We have federal law that prevents the military from acting like law enforcement for a reason. And the military can't do it here. That's different than other countries, maybe. But there's no way to collect that, to pay for it. And on top of all of that, our Constitution, which is our federal statutes, the Constitution that I, as an FBI agent and as a prosecutor, um, swore to uphold, includes a provision that says that there is some right to carry a gun, although the Supreme Court decides every decade a different, gives it a different definition on what, what rights you may or may not have. But that gun advocate group has been very vocal since the, since the uh, 70s, funded by the gun manufacturers to claim that everybody has a right to any gun they want anytime. And there are many people who believe that many, many people who believe that, and they're never giving their guns up. So it's not possible culturally, more than money-wise, more than federal laws, more than administrative support. Culturally, this country does not want to give up their weapons. That's my short answer. All right, that's my long answer. I want to tell you one, can I tell you one other thing about guns though, and unsecured guns? Yep. Yeah, I was doing some research for this new book and, um, and our one of the federal agencies here that's uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, keeps statistics on what it sounds like, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It'll tell you how many people died of the flu last year and what ages they were and what, what areas of the country they died from and so many other things. And they, they also keep track of firearms deaths. And in 2020, which was the last numbers I was looking at, because they are federal, so they take a while to get their numbers out. In 2020, we had about 45,000 people die of firearms deaths in the United States. And that's terrible. But of those 45,000 firearms deaths, about 50 of them were from mass shootings, 5-0 from these active shooters. So most firearm deaths in the United States are not the what you see on the news. Most of them are domestic conflicts, fights between people, two idiots in a bar, a guy who decides he's going to kill his wife and three kids in a murder-suicide, domestic violence, men who shoot their wives, occasionally the other way around, but mostly men who kill their wives because they have access to a firearm. 
and so many other, you know, gangs and drugs and fights in the neighborhoods. Most violence in the United States occurs in the neighborhoods. And it's a small number of people who own firearms who commit that violence and, and sometimes repeatedly commit that violence. That doesn't make any of it better. But I'm just going to add this one extra fact about kids. At that same year that 45,000 people died from firearms deaths, about 300 people died, most of those when children accidentally found a gun and fired and shot and killed a sibling or a friend. I mean, it's a small number compared to the 45,000, but it's still too much, isn't it? Especially if you consider that it's how many times more than, say, 50 people in a mass killing. And we do all this news coverage for that. But those are unsecured weapons. And now, you know, in the last a couple of decades, we have doubled the amount of guns in the United States. Doubled. And all those guns are sitting in shoeboxes and in cereal cupboards um, and on counters. And people are keeping them in their sock drawer because they think and underneath car seats uh, because they think that the, that nobody knows it and it's secure. But, you know, when there's a concert here or when there's a sporting event, the gang kids know that once the sporting event starts, then they because you can't take a weapon into a sporting event. The gang kids know they just walk through the parking lots and reach under the front seats and in the glove boxes of all the cars and they steal hundreds of guns. Yeah, those. Yeah. Oh, it's just people who are just, but it's because people don't appreciate that their gun is part of the problem, right? Right now in the United States, people have this mental attitude that like there's a shooter around every corner and I'm going to, I'm going to save myself by shooting first. None of them do. None of them do. All of these, what you, what seem to be random shootings, they're not, there's no good guy with a gun coming to the aid. You know, that happens uh, four times in, you know, in, in 500 occurrences or something like that. I mean, I'm making those numbers up, but they're just it's yeah. very, very small. You're probably four times more likely to stop a shooter who is acting uh, against everybody's interest uh, by physically interfering with them, by grabbing the weapon, by throwing something at them, by whatever, if you don't get away in a run-hide fight situation. So owning that gun is, gives you a false sense of security. That's what I think. Yeah, no. You don't know how to use it, you shouldn't be carrying it. Yeah, I can see that. Aren't I a joy to talk to? Yeah. Well, I, want to, I want to ask you one more. Well, another thing. Um, you mentioned it there um, to do with Hollywood and mm-hmm. reporting. And just with the figures that you told me about, and even though it was only 5050 that were mass shootings, because of the coverage that it gets, both in you know films, documentaries, the shooter gets, and the news coverage that they get, that's what you hear more about. That's what the sensationalize that. So that's why, mm-hmm. even though it's such a small number, that's why we hear about that more than all the, the other ones that are happening. As an ex journalist, as a former journalist, what's your stance on that? I know that what you said in the book, but I'm curious to see what you, to hear what, to hear you say it. So, you know, that's interesting, um, that you asked me that question because, um, you know, on the podcast, on our podcast, Stop the Killing, we do not name shooters. Yeah. And, I like um, that. But we do talk about them, right? So we don't name them. We don't get give them the glory, but we talk about what led up to the shooting and what people saw or might have been able to see if they had been looking, right? But as a law enforcement officer, when I wrote the FBI's initial research on these shootings, I had uh, analysts, I had people who worked on my team who said we shouldn't name any of the shooters. 
And I said, we're the FBI. You know, we have to name the shooter once. And so that's it. So my view is you name the shooter once and that's it. But law enforcement here in the States during um, press conferences, many times they, many times law enforcement won't identify somebody by name because it's available in the public record and they'll tell journalists they can go get it, but they're not going to say the name. And there's a movement here called don't tell, don't, don't, what they call don't say their name. Don't, uh, I can't remember what it's called right now. But the idea is that you just don't identify them by name. You said in your book that, you know, the reason that you don't, you want to try and get away from showing, saying the name or showing pictures or for them, because you mentioned that there was a correlation between that and. Yeah, we call it the contagion impact. Um, I call it the contagion impact. And it's, it's really started. uh, It's, it's not even just, you know, the shooting that happened yesterday at the University of North Carolina, the shooter had um, killed himself on his automatic uh, weapon, semi-automatic weapon that he carried. He had uh, painted swastikas on it and he'd written documents that talked about so many things, including the Christchurch shooting. The idea of hate, right? And hate, um, people want to, they want to be like that guy. And we saw that um, when, and it's a problem in the United States, when the high school shooting occurred at Columbine High School in Colorado, in the state of Colorado, those there were two shooters there. And it was a time when I think television and Hollywood and, and everything uh, didn't recognize the risk of talking about them. And they kind of glamorized them. And they made them these kind of uh, anti-heroes uh, where they talked all about who these uh, shooters were. And there, there were big specials on television about their background. And there were books written. and there was a created uh, really a fantasy life of what these guys were. This idea that if you ask anybody in the States and maybe around the country, around the world, tell me something about the shooters from Columbine High School. They'll say they were bullied and they were part of a group called the Trench Coat Mafia. And both of those are inaccurate facts, completely inaccurate. There were two kids who one of them had gone to the prom a couple of days before the shooting, but they had methodically planned for months and gathered all the stuff for a long time because they just wanted to commit this crime. They just thought it would be cool. And then all of this television and movie pieces in the books, they had to make it sound sexier. So they created these personas of these two bully kids who were bullied and picked on by athletes and who were part of this group called the Trenchcoat Mafia, which they were not, though the school had a group that was called that, and they were not part of it. And then what happened after that is that every other wannabe shooter began to idolize and do the things that the Columbine shooters did. And the same thing about the shooter at Christ Church, the same thing about the shooter at Dunblane. They all, especially if they were um, engaged in ideological uh, threats, like uh, somebody who might be against a particular religious group or a white supremacist, a racist. Those in particular we see in the States um, and we've seen nationally and internationally, uh, they, they relate to each other and they write out why they're doing this because somebody wronged them and these, this, this type of people don't, shouldn't survive or they shouldn't live here or they did us wrong or whatever their feeble excuses to make up, uh, which is all it is, to kill, to kill other people. But they rely on each other's stories. So by naming people, you know, you're giving that person the glory that he wanted and you're telling the next shooter, you do what this guy did 
we'll be talking about you for the next 50 years. And we made that mistake after Columbine, and we're not making that again. Not here in the States. No, I like that. Obviously, the everybody's out for viewers. So it must be difficult. You're not ever going to get the all the news stations to agree to not do that or to not show a photo. But even you said compromise and just put a little photo down in the corner rather than the big one all over the screen. Even just little things like that. Or do a picture of where the street that they stayed in, or some, you know, where this, where they live, something. But do you know, do you think that that will ever happen? Because it's all about viewers, and they'll be frightened that if they don't do it, the other station, the other news station would, and they're going to lose it to them. Do you think that's I think, viable? I think ten years ago, uh, I believe that, or maybe fifteen years ago, but I think that they definitely have turned the corner. I deal with uh, news producers all the time. I feel like too much, um, <laughs> but it's a good. I mean, I'm always, I'm always happy for all you news producers who are out there. I'm always happy to talk to you and give you guidance on on how to how to uh, so Solomon split the baby, you know, and make sure that you get your coverage. I was a journalist. I know how important it is to do the coverage, but I also know how you can do it. And like like you mentioned, you know, you don't leave the picture up there. It used to be. I think if you saw the photographs sometimes, you know, sometimes, you know, when we go to a shooter's house, for instance, if they kill themselves or after we arrest them and you look in their bedroom, you know, you look in the person's office or you look in their notebook and they, they have printed out or in the old days, they would have clipped out and posted on their walls, the front page papers from and other newspaper stories that show their hero standing with a weapon or the photographs, the kinds of things that we're beginning to see less and less and less of is um, news agencies who feel the need to constantly run a subject's photo really large and constantly run the photos that they post of themselves on social media. A lot of times shooters, you know, they're not, they don't, no one's born saying, hey, I want to be a mass killer. So they have to become that. And part of that is that they change their appearance and they they play pretend, you know, it's cosplay. They put these little outfits on and take their pictures in front of their mirrors and use their cell phone to snap a photo of themselves, you know, looking tough with their gun. Those kinds of things that get posted on social media, every one of those should be reported to law enforcement. Not that posting is against the law here, but it just keeps law enforcement aware of people who may be on a trajectory towards violence. Those kinds of pictures, law enforcement doesn't want to see, they used to share those photographs, for instance, give them out at press conferences. They don't do that anymore. And media is beginning to understand that pushing, they've pushed a narrative legally. Let me tell you, research shows, like academic research shows that when the media has covered these shootings, more shootings occur. And the media is now aware in the United States the most respected minds in the media world, Columbia Journalism Review, The Trace, that they understand that they have been complicit over the decades in making these people popular. And they are turning the tide. They do not want to be part of the story. So they are stopping posting big fancy pictures over and over again, showing some kid, you know, pointing a gun at himself in the mirror and all those kinds of things and using their names. And and we've really stressed that the focus should be on the victims and the survivors because we know from research that one, when you talk about a shooter and when a shooter talks about his manifesto and how he wants to create more death, it prompts the next guy to do it. 
We know that from research now. We didn't know that 20 years ago. That's really huge that they're acknowledging that and making steps to, to rectify it. I like that. Yeah, okay. I think media guys are good. I got a lot of, I got a lot of friends in the media. They're not as bad as everybody thinks. <laughs> wow, you have to say that. You were one. <laughs> oh, they're nice people. You know what? They get paid nothing. So they have to be they have to be doing it for the right reason. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Okay, you've mentioned your new book a couple of times. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, thank you, and thank you for asking, even though I totally dropped it oh, right in the, on the table. Going to ask so, anyway. <laughs> oh, well, that's, I have two books out, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. And this year also, I released a smaller book, which I think is really so important for Americans in particular. But I think if you want to understand the gun world in the United States, there's a quick read I wrote called How to Talk About Guns with Anyone. and that's it. How to talk about guns with anyone. It's got a cute little, my publisher helper, helper put little talk bubbles on the front of it, oh, which yeah, I thought was kind of cute. <laughs> yeah, little talk bubbles. So many rumors about what the laws are. There's so many rumors about how many guns we have or what the reason why people want guns. A little bit of, you know, our history and what the Supreme Court has done over the years and what it takes to buy a gun, what the laws and regulations really are, but then also how to address people who are on polar opposite ends of the conversation from, I don't think we should have a single gun in the country to, I should have any gun I want, including a bazooka. Um, cool. Right, which cool. I've heard before. <laughs> I've heard it before. People, I've heard people no. say it that many times. <laughs> so, right. So I wrote this book. It's really, a, it's kind of a fun, quick read, I say. Um which maybe seems really weird to say, but maybe that's because I live in this weird world. Of course, you live in murder, so you know what I mean. <laughs> and and I wrote it so that people would not have to guess what the laws are and what's going on in the United States 
and they'd have a better understanding. So even outside the States, I, I, I wrote it in hopes that it helps people to understand better why we have the guns that we have in the United States, why we're not going to get rid of them. But also at the end of it, um, it has the last two chapters. One of them is called Not Gonna Happen. So it's like, stop talking about this as a solution. It's not gonna happen. And then the next, the last chapter is called Might Happen. And these are the things that people are actually discussing that are positive ways that we can lower gun violence because it's not a single solution. And I think everybody outside, I feel like everybody outside the United States says if they would just get rid of the guns, that would do it. And that's a non-starter. It's a non-starter in the States. So you've got to know what these other things that might happen that might make it work. Mm -hmm. And it creates a much better conversation because it's a productive conversation. Exactly. You just have to accept it from what you've, what, what I've read and what you've said. It's not going to happen. It's gone way past that now. So it's now finding solutions and working together to prevent right. it. I was just going to say one thing that's different. You know, it's, it seems like for our field, but when I was a young lawyer, I worked on this case, this appellate court case, and, um, and it went up to the state Supreme Court. So that was kind of cool, and which I won. Mm-hmm. So it was my one time I was there and I won. So I say I'm perfect in front of the Supreme <laughs> Court. Um, but it was a drug case. And I had really didn't understand uh, the historical background for uh, drug laws in the United States. And I learned that in the U.S., and probably not uncommon in other countries, but in the U.S., we, you know, we, oh, well, we have a big drug problem. You know, I mean, there's a drug problem and people are using drugs illegally and illicit, all illicit drug use. This was the case about, you know, somebody who was selling drugs and, and uh, they were arrested for it. And, and of course they went to jail. But the question became, you know, what is the drug historically? Why do we enforce drug laws and what are they? And one of the things that I learned in doing the research for that case is that drugs were regulated solely for medical purposes in the United States for a couple of centuries, it seemed like. For hundreds of years, we're not a couple of centuries old like you, but for, for a long time in the United States, there were no drug laws because there, there were no drug criminal laws because drugs weren't, you know, used and abused in an illicit way. And they were, the drug laws simply were formed for medical purposes. And so because of that, we almost had to play catch up in terms of of uh, and the law of saying, oh, holy cow, people are, you know, doctors are improperly prescribing drugs, and um, people who may, who have access to drugs are giving them to people when they shouldn't be, and that becomes drug abuse, and drug abuse goes, and and then of course there was no regulation on drugs like you know marijuana that's just gr- you can grow in your backyard, right? So so the drug laws in the United States came about after the uh, criminal activity had already gotten underway. So if you think about it in terms of guns in the United States, we've had guns in the United States since before the United States was the United States. And we had many in in general, you know, if you uh, went into a town in Tombstone, Arizona, classic uh, example, you would probably have to take your, uh, your gun off of your hip or out of your saddlebag and leave it in the sheriff's office. Because most, a lot of towns, guns weren't allowed uh, back then, but there weren't, uh, but there was a different way that you handled them, right? And, uh, you know, guns weren't locked up. They were kept in your, you know, on your dresser in case you needed to get your gun because somebody was coming after your cattle or 
things like that. So guns were prevalent. We had uh, guns, of course. Uh, we had our own internal civil war. We had a militia. Every state had its own militia. Many laws required the civilians who had to report to the militia, adult males, to own their own gun. So it isn't that we had a prohibition of guns in the United States. It's that we didn't have a problem with guns, just like we didn't have a problem with drugs. So then suddenly we start to have problems with guns, and we have guns already. And then we're manufacturing them, and we're pumping them out like we're pumping out, like Thomas Edison is setting up electricity up, and like Henry Ford is pumping out cars. So, you know, we're just like, now we're in the gun manufacturing business, and every, everybody can get a gun. And guns went from being boutique and expensive to less expensive, just like Model A's brought us uh, vehicles that were cheaper because they were standard issue, standard created. So, you know, I mean, that's that's the function of what's happened in our country. We 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 grew into uh, gun ownership uh, kind of unexpectedly. Yeah. All right, that's a very see how long I talk a long time. I'm sorry. No, no, it makes it makes sense though. It's it's helpful, like you say, because we I was one of the people that was just saying, no, why not just get rid of it? But it's it's good. It's interesting. And and well, and if, and if you know if you lived in a if you lived in a farm. You know, and you had a rifle for, for, uh, you know, protect your, uh, herd. Would you want to law enforcement coming and taking it away? No. Of course not. And, um, and I think in other countries, they found a way early on to license. Um, but we did not. Yeah. Now yeah. we have to deal with what we have. Exactly. So from the podcast, Stop the Killing, the book, Stop the Killing, and your new book, which I've just forgotten the title of. How to Talk About Guns with Anyone, a very sophisticated oh. title. <laughs> It's too many words for me to remember. <laughs> I, I'm a very simple, I'm a very simple, I'm like, let's see, what should I call this book? Stop the killing. Let's see, what should see I call this one. book? That one. Yeah. How to talk about guns with anyone. I know we only, I only, uh, I had a few, uh, how to talk about guns with anyone at CrimeCon and they all sold right away. So that was like, so you didn't get a chance to see them there. No, no, I'll, I'll definitely read it though. Cause I'm fascinated. Books are really, really interesting you're very Um, kind thank you with that and obviously you've got a security consult is it a security consultancy business you've got i do yes i I do um i I do what i try to do is help somebody i help uh companies that really just need advice schools universities that uh, i do um reviews of policies and procedures it sounds very boring but what it means is um are there some big missing pieces in your in i'm let me say this, for instance, about Oxford, because we talked about it, because I'm, I'm not criticizing the people at Oxford High School who've dealt with that terrible uh, situation. In, um, but we know that four people were killed and that parents spoke to a, a counselor. Maybe the policy should, should be going forward that anytime there is a certain level of concern, the counselor um, should automatically bring a school resource officer into the conversation, should automatically bring a vice principal or an assistant principal and or the principal into a conversation so that there are more eyes and ears on it. So those are policies and procedures. And that's what I do with companies too. Because, you know, companies more tw- twice as often one of these shootings occurs in a place of business as opposed to a school environment. We hear about the news about schools, but businesses are the largest places at risk for these types of kind of mass shootings, um, active shooters that are unexpected and people are scattering all over. So the better the policies are for the, for the businesses, meaning the better systems that they have in place to do background checks, to do threat assessment of meaning have a system in place to talk 
about if you have an employee who's a problem, who's having problems, who filed for bankruptcy, now his wife is divorcing him, he didn't get the promotion, and he's just doing it at his desk every day, and people know it and they see it, is he going to be the guy who's going to come in Friday afternoon or Monday morning? What is your threat assessment team? What are the people in your company able to do to um, de-escalate that situation, maybe get him some help, get him some financial assistance, get him some counseling? in a number of different things and just show that you care. Those kinds of things are the things that I set up with companies in my consultancy is to say, hey, this is great that you have this, but you don't have this. Or you don't have any locks on any of the doors between all your manufacturing rooms from here to here to here to here. Anybody who comes into your building can come in and go all the way through the building. How about if we just put a lock on this second door? So after they come in the front door, they can't get through the second door. So simple things like that, that sometimes you just see them because you're an outsider. So that's what I do in my consultancy. And that was what I was going to say with all these things. What's your goal? What do you want to, what do you want people to be more, is it more, you want them to be more aware, more informed? Is that what your goal is? Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, I, I think that everybody on one side of the table is saying, well, just get rid of the guns and all the violence will stop. And the other guys on the other side of the table are saying, uh, we can never stop it. It's just going to be, it's just part of life. It's just uh, part of the dangers that we have in society. And I'm saying like, no, that's not true. I mean, we can always do better. We, in the United States, the the highest number of deaths uh, for uh, infants and children under the age of 19 were uh, auto accidents until 2020. And you know what surpassed the, what became the number one killer of children in the United States after 2020? Firearms. Firearms. So the largest uh, incidence of, of ch- deaths for children, 19 and under, firearms. Auto, we managed to take the auto deaths down and we've continued to take them down since we put cars on the road because we put safety features into cars, put seat belts on cars, we lowered speed limits, we talked to people about driving, we got made people take driver safety courses, all kinds of things that lowered that. We can do all kinds of things. And I think that everybody can do something. You can do two things, uh, three things. One, you should know how to respond if some, if a shooting occurs. Even if it's a rare occurrence, it is a, it is a tragedy that occurs. And just like you're prepared for a fire or a tornado or a mudslide or an earthquake or a hurricane, you should be prepared in case there is another danger that occurs near you. And that includes taking training, you know, we all take first aid training as kids and uh, young adults and scouts and things like that. But nowadays, uh, we also believe that you should learn training called Stop the Bleed, which is, um, say, if you get uh, broke, if you're in a skiing accident or a car accident and you break a leg and you start to bleed, if you put a tourniquet on that leg, you're going to save a life. That's Stop the Bleed. So it's, you can go online to stopthebleed.org and find it. Um, And you can take that training Uh, So you know how to stop the bleeding. So that's part of being prepared in case something bad happens. But then the other thing you can do is keep your head out of your, you know, out of the screen in front of you and uh, look around at the people around you, care for people, know who's under duress, know who has access to guns and ensure that guns and weapons, not just guns, but cars and knives, ensure that they're, that those individuals who are under duress are cared for and know they're cared for and look for ways to assist them because we all you know, we all are broken inside in so many different ways. Um, you know, we all have ups and downs in our lives, whether it's relationship issues, which is the biggest issue, um, mental health, mental wellness issues, anxiety and depression, 
health issues, breakups with the divorce, uh, you know, a death of a family member, all of those things impact us. And the care that you give to people around you uh, makes them feel that they're not alone. Remember, a lot of these people commit suicide um, and tend to and do commit suicide because they don't think that anybody cares because they're in the moment of suicidal uh, uh, tendencies. So you can do both things. Prepare if something's going to happen. But more important than that, see what you can do. See what your role is to prevent. Because everybody has a role to prevent. And it really starts with kindness and awareness of those around you. Oh, that's a lovely way to end. Very emotional. <laughs> I'm sorry, I get very... <laughs> I get very maudlin. Oh, you brought I me just, right down now. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just believe we can do that. I think that we can. I'm sorry to... All of your fans who are used to hearing really fun, cool stories. Maybe I'll tell you that maybe next time I'll come on and tell you the story about my friend who worked on a case that had a, that had multiple heads that they found in multiple containers. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> we'll have her on. You'll love her story. She's one of my coworkers. She said to this day she can't own, she can't own a cooler. Those little chest coolers that you take to the to the park. She says, I can't own one of those. Every time I open it up, I see those heads. That's an awful story. <laughs> I, I just wanted to leave you. I wanted to leave you with a positive story there. <laughs> no. So I'll leave you with the other story. But that's it. That was a lovely way to end. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I really appreciate you giving me the time. And I just think that this is such a great format that you have. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview by Dawn from Scottish Murders Podcast. And a massive thank you again to Dawn for sharing her audio. It does take a lot of effort to make these podcasts. So we appreciate when other podcasters help us out in that way. But it's not just podcasters that can help us out. We know that you, our listeners, have access to really important levers to get the Stop the Killing message out there. One of the things that I've recently realized is that YouTube has more male skewed listeners than our podcast. The YouTube channel, I've just started adding the videos of the podcast to it. It is Sarah Ferris, F for frog, E-R-R-I-S for sugar, media. That is the channel. And it has not only Stop the Killing, but it has all of my podcasts that I produce on there. So what I'm asking is that even if you don't watch YouTube. Like, honestly, it's not something that I watch very often at all either. But if you have an account, what I would really, really love and appreciate is if you went on Sarah Ferris Media and hit subscribe, because then we can boost the algorithm out to more people. And what that means is that we can get a more diverse audience if we get out onto the different platforms. And if you listened to our episode a couple of weeks ago called Stopped the Killing, you'll know and recognize just how important it is for us to get our message far and wide. So, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. Go and have a search now. Click the link in the show notes wherever you're listening. Hopefully it'll take you straight through to Sarah Ferris Media. Click subscribe and that's it. Job done. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. 
Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.